righty. All right, the Gospel of John, chapter number 8, beginning with verse 1. And Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? What sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you. Let him first cast a stone at her. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, it's our privilege to look into the scripture. And now we definitely need you to speak to all of our hearts. We honor you. We reverence you. We're grateful for your presence. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. This is one of those stories that in most modern editions of the Bible is either bracketed or excluded. The reason for that is because all modern Bibles since 1881 are based upon Greek texts that differ from the Greek text that underlies Bibles made before 1881. The two manuscripts that are used, one was found in the basement of the Vatican. The second manuscript that New Testaments are based on was found at a monastery in the deserts of Egypt. And this particular manuscript was in the process of being burned when it was discovered. But because of the beautiful calligraphy and the antiquity of the manuscripts, the scholars in England and in America took two manuscripts that never had a history of usage in any Christian church. They made that the basis for the newer Greek Testaments. And so that is why when you read modern versions, this particular story is either bracketed or excluded. Since pastor believes it's been in the tradition of the scripture from the beginning, pastor preaches it like it's the word of God because it is the word of God. Now it's important to understand that the gospel of John was written in order to produce faith in those who read it. He specifically selected the stories included in this gospel so that the reader would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That was his ultimate objective. That was his aim. So he told the story of the water turned to wine to show that God could change a substance from one thing into another. The story of Nicodemus is told to us so that we'll understand that regardless of someone's background, however educated, however wealthy and powerful, they need to be born again. 
We learn about the man at the pool of Bethesda who had been there crippled for 38 years and surrounded by infirmed people. Jesus comes to him as they were waiting for an angel to come and stir the waters because the first one in would be healed. Jesus said to this man who had been ill longer than many of you in here been alive, do you want to be made whole? He said yes, and he was healed. That shows us that there's no infirmity that's greater than God. And with the story of Lazarus, here was a man that had been dead for four days, and yet Jesus raised him from the dead by calling him by his name. No problem is too difficult for God. No circumstance is too difficult for God. The question was posed one time, is there anything? Too hard for God. No. Well, the context of the story is a feast. And Jesus' family in John chapter 7, the first few verses, they had gone up to the feast. And the scripture says his own brethren didn't believe in him. His brothers and sisters didn't believe in his ministry. And they said, you ought to go up to Israel, go up to Jerusalem and show your power. Jesus said, my hour isn't come. It's not time for me to go and do that quite yet, but he did secretly go up to Jerusalem, and the Bible says some Greek people were there, and they came to one of his disciples and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. That's everyone's desire, to see him, to meet him, to hear him. But yet, the enthusiasm that drove thousands of people to listen to him, it never did wane. That enthusiasm continued to peak. And the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 1, that he went into the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Israel, you know the Mount of Olives is directly across from the Temple Mount. There's a valley or a ravine that separates you. And the last two verses of Luke chapter 21 tells us that this is where Jesus went and slept, and this is where Jesus came to pray. This is where he had his communion with God, his devotion with God. Do you have a place like that? Do you have a Mount of Olives in your life? Maybe a pond that you walk around, a wooded area you like to walk through. Maybe a drive in the car or a place in your home where you can get away with God and you can talk directly to him. That's your Mount of Olives. Every Christian should have one. Every believer should have time alone with God. And it was here at the Mount of Olives that Jesus poured his heart out. It was here that he prayed. It was through this place that he would pass into the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of crushing, the place where olives were broken so that the oil could come forth from those olives and then be used. The scripture makes it very plain in verse 2 that it was early in the morning that he departed from that place and went back to the temple. Because the temple was the center of Jewish life. The temple was the place that was important to Jewish worshipers. The temple was under the control of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a fraternal order of, of men that had purchased the priesthood with money from the Roman emperor. 
And they denied that there was a resurrection from the dead. They denied that there were angels. And they did not believe in any kind of spirit. Acts chapter 23 verse 8 makes it very plain. Here were people who denied the power of God and they controlled the most holy place for the Jewish people. How many of our churches in the heartland today are under the control of preachers that don't believe in the supernatural? That deny that God's book is the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. How many churches today are pastored by people who deny that God has angels that encamp about those that fear him? Thousands of churches that have people in the pulpit preaching the word who very often are preaching a word they don't believe or are preaching what they really believe and inflicting the people with that same unbelief. Jesus got up early in the morning, made his way to the temple, and you can see in verse 2, the people made their way there also. Why would anybody get up early in the morning to go to church, to go to the house of God? They got up early because they wanted to hear from the Lord. They wanted to hear his teaching. They wanted to hear his voice. How early would you get up to go to church if you had to? If you had to have a sunrise service, would anybody even see you? If you wanted to have an early morning service where people gathered before the sun came up, could anybody even get you out of bed? I can remember in years past, I'd say to folks, you know, we can do an early morning service around here in Hebron if you like. And one person after another said, Pastor, we're quite pleased with that evening service. But early in the morning, the people came to hear Jesus and he sat down and spoke to to them. They didn't come because they wanted to hear the bleeding of the sheep or the animal sacrifices. They didn't come because they wanted to see well-robed clergy people. They came because they wanted contact with God. This is why people come to worship. This is why we gather. Wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is in our midst. We don't come just to see one another. We want the presence of God to be here. To hear the voice of God speaking directly to our hearts. Because God can say more to us in a few moments that is is of importance than somebody else can say in an hour and a half. They came to the temple because they wanted to hear from Jesus and they sat there patiently hanging on to every word. Meanwhile, the scripture tells us in verse 3 that the scribes and Pharisees were busy that morning also. They chased down a lady. What is a scribe? The scribes were the professional copyists of the Hebrew scriptures. They knew how to take an old scroll and they knew how to put lines in it and write the letters the right size, made sure that everything was lined out perfectly in a horizontal and vertical fashion. 
They were also like the lawyers because they were involved with the text of Scripture. They knew the ins and outs of all of the minutia connected with the Hebrew letters. But the Pharisees were another fraternal order who were keepers of tradition. They could tell you what some rabbi said 150 years ago and how he passed it down to his disciples who passed it down to his disciple all the way to Jesus' time. The Pharisees were keepers of traditions. Both groups were lovers of the word of God and strong traditionalists. And that morning when Jesus got up and washed his face and his hands and dressed himself to go to the temple and the ladies and men were getting up with their kids to go to the house of God at the same time, somewhere down at the foot of the hill, some lamps went on in some houses. There was a lady that got up as well as a man. and They were preparing for a secret rendezvous. This lady got up and prettied herself and that gentleman got himself together. They knew that they weren't supposed to be together, but they were doing this, hoping that no one would see. And one of them, if not both of them, dashing down through alleys, looking over their shoulder, hoping that no one would see what they were about to do. And the lady, not even knowing that she's being observed, got into that home with her lover. And as you can see in verse 3, it says she was taken in adultery and brought to Jesus. Think of that. Here was a woman that got up that morning thinking she could be in the secret embrace of the man that she loved. All would be well. She had no idea that when she was in the midst of heated passion and inflamed lust, while she was in his warm embrace, that in would come some men through the door with anger and scowl upon their faces and then grab her and she quickly would be seized in the clutches of men that were angry. It happened just like that. These men knew exactly where she was going because when they got together and they believed no one saw what was taking place, they also were hiding in the shadows and watching. They waited until they were in the very act of intercourse. Can you imagine how surprised and startled these two were? And then for their astonishment to turn to fear, know that the scribes and the Pharisees had caught them. They didn't bring the male, they left the man. Leviticus 20 makes it very plain, both male and female were to be killed because of their sin. They took this lady, and I don't know, but maybe they just gave her a few moments to barely grab a few articles of clothing. Whatever she was wearing, it would have been enough to keep her from defiling the precincts of the temple. But they marched that lady from the residential section on the hill or at the bottom of the hill, up the hill into the temple. Can you imagine how degrading that would have been? Surrounded by people 
that want to see you die. Now the temple was organized in a segregated way. When you walked into the temple courtyard, there was Solomon's porch. You read about it in the book of Acts. That's where the disciples hung out and prayed for the sick. Go a little further, you've got the court of the Gentiles. Jewish people from all the different nations could come and hang out there. Go up a set of stairs. You go into an elevated part. It's court of the women. It's where the Jewish ladies could go and no further. Up another flight of stairs to the court of the Jewish men. That's where they could go and hang out. Up another flight of stairs and only the priests could go that far. And here was this lady making her way, surrounded by a hostile, angry crowd, men all around her, speaking to her about how filthy, how defiled she was, how she had broken the law and was deserving of death. Jesus is teaching hundreds of people. And imagine the ruckus as they interrupted his teaching. And the people began to part And the scribes and Pharisees came in with all of their beautiful clothing and then shoved that woman right there in the midst. No doubt there were people in that crowd looked at her and said, I've seen her before. I know her. And probably people in that crowd was thinking, what in the world? Why is she looking like that? I guarantee she was shaking. She was trembling. Her heart was beating rapidly because she was nervous. She knew these people had death on their minds. And when they set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, we caught her in the very act of the dirty deed. We saw her. And he said, the scribe said in verse 5, Moses' law commands that she should be stoned, but what do you say? It's interesting to me. Very interesting. Jesus could have said a lot of things, but if this tells me anything and demonstrates anything, it shows me the power of religion in people's lives. It can be used for good. It can be used for ill. You can take the law and beat it over someone's head and destroy them. Think of how many people there are today who refuse to go to church because of how they were mistreated in the church. A preacher went after their spouse. A lot of them. Yeah. Think of how many people there are that refuse to go to church because of how a church or a denomination treated someone who was caught in sin. Back in the 80s, there were a lot of preachers. Early 90s, a lot of preachers ended up doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Got caught. There are people that to this day won't go back to church because they're still angry at God or some preacher. Yeah. I wonder how many people have been abused in some shape, form, or fashion and ran out of a church and said, I'm never going back. Somebody that had a difficulty, but some custom or teaching in the church was used to abuse them. You know, church is a place where there should be a modicum of grace. But the scribes and Pharisees weren't thinking that way. They were thinking about Moses' law. They said, Moses said the woman should die. What do you say? 
So on their minds was death. On their minds was stoning. Their hearts and minds were closed. Their fists were clenched. They were ready to march her outside of the temple, outside of the city, where there was a heap of stones, and they wanted to pelt this woman until she died. Told you I've seen that before. Up close in person overseas. Can you imagine that there still are places in this world where people are stoned to death in Islam? If you've never seen the movie, it's worth seeing the movie at least one time. A little movie called The Stoning of Sariah. It's about a little 14-year-old girl who was married to a Muslim man who wanted to divorce her to marry another woman, but she refused to give him a divorce, so she made, he made up a lie, said that she committed adultery with someone, and talked the whole village into stoning her to death. And it's a true story. In the region of Baluchistan, where Afghanistan and Iran comes together, you still have stonings. Saudi Arabia still stones people. The outer rural areas of Pakistan, Egypt, they still have it. Scripture made it very plain here. Moses had a word that if you commit adultery, you ought to die. Now you may be wondering, are there any occurrences of stoning in the scripture. Acts chapter 7, the first martyr in the New Testament, Stephen, stoned by his own brethren. And then in Numbers, it tells the story of a man that was gathering firewood on the Sabbath day. The book of Exodus made it very plain on the Sabbath day, you're not to gather sticks. But this man in Numbers 15, verses 32 and the following verses, he was gathering sticks. They found him, brought him to Moses, and Moses told him, here is what God has commanded, and they stoned him and he died. Folks, I'm thanking God every day that grace and truth came with Jesus, and we were born on this side of the cross, this side of the cross. I know this lady was afraid. These individuals meant her harm. And it says in verse 6 that they were tempting him because they wanted to have a reason to accuse him of being irreverent and disobedient to the law. Now think of that. Scripture says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And I have found that whatever church it is, wherever a person attends, if the devil ever gets in that church, he comes in wearing a pair of pants, a dress, a skirt, or a suit. He has to have humans through which he can manifest himself. So this woman who's guilty is surrounded by her accusers. This Savior, who is innocent, is also surrounded by the same accusers. They're looking to get him in trouble. She's already in trouble. Jesus, what do you say? The law says she should die. We want to know what you think about this. And Jesus stooped down and acted like he didn't pay him any attention at all. That's exactly how God is. 
God doesn't worry about the accusations of the devil and the accusations of other people. His response and reaction is not based on what they do. And he never responded to the lady according to their accusations. You look at how many atheists there are in this world that deny that God exists, but yet they breathe God's air every day. God lets them. You think of how many agnostic people there are that say things like, well, there might be a God. We just don't really know if he exists because we can't contact him. Nevertheless, God still lets their heart beat. And you, just like me, the only thing that keeps you breathing while I'm teaching and me breathing while I'm sharing is the power of God. He holds the very breath of your body in his hand. And as David said on one occasion, there is but one step between me and death. As sure as I'm going home for a funeral this coming week, there's somebody else somewhere preparing for a funeral tomorrow. And as sure as all of us are in here healthy and wise and happy and all of that, tomorrow isn't promised to anybody. Especially when you take the religious law and put it in the hands of people that despise you. That despise you. Jesus stood up in the midst of this angry crowd. And I love what he said. He said, you that are without sin, you be the first to cast a stone. Now, of course, they, they, they had Leviticus 20, verse 10 on their minds. They're, they're thinking there's going to be a stoning taking place, and, and we've, got, we've got the crowd ready. We're ready to take somebody's life. And Jesus gets up, and he says, okay, if there's somebody sinless, you can throw the first rock. And they say, hold on for a second. Hold on. Time out. Time out. You are not playing according to the rules. The rules say... The lady in adultery is guilty of the law. We're looking for a sentence of death. And you've turned this thing upon us so that we have to look inward now. You're basically trying to tell us that we're as guilty as this woman that we caught in sin. That him that's without sin first cast a stone. Well, if, if you think about that, who is there on this planet that has not sinned? Think about that. The psalmist says, we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. The same psalmist said in chapter 58, verse number three, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are death like an adder that stops her ears, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. The Lord is saying that even from the womb, sin is on the inside of a child. 
The same way it's on the inside of a snake that has venom in it. That venom is concentrated when it's a little small snake and it's still there when the thing grows. And the Lord makes it very plain that we come into this world tainted by original sin. Because of one man, sin, death, sin, reigns and is passed upon every generation. The difference between the baby and us is that the baby isn't guilty of any actual sin. Hasn't even come to a point and place as an infant or a toddler where they know the difference between the various degrees of sin. But here's the thing. They heard the word of Jesus. And it says in verse 9. Convicted by their own conscience. Now what is your conscience? Your conscience is that part of you that should be molded and shaped by God's word. That conscience is the part of you that accuses you when you do wrong and you're guilty. And excuses you when your behavior is okay. But your conscience has to be shaped and molded by the word of God. Otherwise, you could have a conscience that will not accuse you of wrongdoing at all when you're sinning. There are plenty of people don't think anything wrong with theft and anything wrong with lying. Well, you know, Paul speaks of a conscience that is seared with a hot iron. You know, for people that have been involved with cattle then you know that if uh, a family is going to, (coughs) excuse me, put their brand on their cattle, then they've got some kind of a poker and it's been shaped in the design of whatever their brand is going to be. But when they pull it out of that fire and put it on that hide, then it sears the hide because it's so hot that it burns and wherever that poker touches, even when the cattle grows, very rarely do you get any kind of fur or anything that'll grow in the middle of all of that where the brand has been placed. That means it's been seared. And that's why so many people are able to recognize their cattle. If you have somebody that comes and rustles them and puts them off in another pen, they can look at it and say, that's mine because it has my brand on it. Well, a person whose conscience has been seared is a person who essentially has a reprobate mind. They don't see anything wrong. They don't see anything right. They're not moral. They're amoral. They're not even immoral. They don't even care about what's right or wrong because their mind has been shot through with so much of what has gone on in culture. Now, the, uh, that, that comedian when I was a kid, Mr. Richard Pryor, he was a very foul-mouthed comedian, but it, it wasn't until I saw a, a documentary of his life that I was able to understand why, why he was so vile. Here was a man raised, not by his parents, but by his grandmother. His grandmother was a madam. She ran a brothel. Here was a young man that was raised in a home where all of the people he thought of as his aunts and uncles 
were harlots and johns that were coming in and out of the place. And having been raised like that, when a man would talk and tell the jokes that he told, people would wonder how he could say these things. It was normal and natural for him. Well, there's a conscience that was seared with a hot iron. But here we have scribes and Pharisees who had known enough of the word and lived the word and believed the word literally to the point that now Jesus has said, if you don't have sin in your life, throw the stone. Now here's the point of what he's saying. Nobody ought to be throwing rocks at anybody. That's what he's saying. There's not a one of us in here that doesn't have sin in our life somewhere. And if God were to pull the curtains back on your life and mine, some of us would probably shiver at what we would see. Yeah. You that are without sin. Because if God could open up the thoughts of your mind, maybe we'd be surprised by what kind of thoughts roll around in your head. See? Yeah. Convicted by their own conscience, from the oldest to the youngest, they started thinking, wow, the one without sin. So the oldest people started thinking, well, I, I, think, uh, I, I think I hear my wife calling me and come ahead on home. Somebody else standing there, they're thinking, well, I... I, I think one of the fence were broken down. I need to go make sure the cattle hadn't got out and on the side of the road somewhere. Somebody else was thinking, I've had this toothache for a little while. Maybe I should go ahead and try to find a dentist somewhere. And before you know it, one person after another disappeared and the noise level went down and Jesus still was stooped down, riding on the ground. And finally he stood up and he said, lady, where in the world are all of these accusers? Anybody else here? And the lady said, Lord, there's nobody here. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no, no more. Now, this is interesting to me because <clears throat> the accusers caught her in sin. They knew she was wrong. But I want you to think about it from her perspective. As she was standing there in front of all of those accusers, do you think if she could go back in time and reverse the course of her life that morning, do you think she would have went on and stayed in bed? I think so. Yeah. Have you ever done anything? Got caught doing something you weren't supposed to do? Ever said something you wish you could get unsaid or been somewhere you wish you hadn't been? And then when the, the consequences of your decisions collide upon you, you just wish you could fix it. I can tell you right now, up and, up and down this valley, there are a whole lot of men and women that at one time or another stepped out on somebody, committed adultery, and had no idea it was going to not only destroy the marriage, but destroy the kids and send them spiraling in a bad direction. There are a whole lot of fathers, a whole lot of uncles and aunties 
that did things they should not have done, that if they could ever go back in time, they'd change it all. Because here they are now standing in the midst of a lot of accusers who not only know what they did, but are saying they deserve everything bad that's coming to them, and that's exactly what they ought to get. And there's some church people like that. When you're down, they not only put their foot on their neck, they take their other leg and start kicking you with it. Yeah. That's not the appropriate thing to do. Jesus was left alone with the woman. This lady was needing this. This time with Christ. She was surrounded by accusers who marched her from her place of iniquity, from her den of sin, straight up the hill to the temple where all the righteous people were. But there really was only one righteous person on the hill. That was Christ. And when everybody else was gone, she was left with the one person she needed the most. And that is why we come to the house of God, because when we gather with the saints, we all know that we're sinners, having been delivered by the grace of God. And we're now saints in the kingdom of God. However, it's the presence of the king that is able to bring forgiveness. He has done no wrong. and He's not pointing a finger at you. He's not pointing a finger at me. This Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now it's obvious by his statement that he didn't approve of her conduct. And we are never to encourage people in sin or make them feel comfortable in sin. But our role, not to condemn them, but to help them. The lady came to the top of the mountain with a sentence of death hanging over her head, but she departed the top of the mountain with life, a new life. Think about that. Everything changes in the presence of Jesus Everything changes when you're left alone with him. Sometimes we need to withdraw ourselves from our accusers and stop hanging around the people that like to point a finger at our faults and defects and flaws who are pointing out this and that and come back to the presence of the king who says, neither do I condemn thee. Yeah. So where are you at in this story? Are you the one that was caught? Are you the one watching Something on the computer you shouldn't have been. Or on the phone with somebody you shouldn't have been talking to. Or involved with something you shouldn't have been involved with. Are you the accuser? You the one that thinks you're so holy, so righteous, so pure, so this, so that, that you can point a finger at everybody else. Or are you just like the other church people in the temple, just sitting there quietly just watching to see how the whole thing's going to play out? Don't really have anything that you want to say. You're just watching. If if we're going to be Christian, be like Christ, then I think we ought to be like Jesus. When people are running their mouth, I think that's a good time for us to stoop down and turn our back to them and say, I'm not going to pay you any attention at all. And I'm not going to respond to him or her on the basis of your accusation. See, Just turn your back to them. 
But when you do stand up and open up your mouth, make it very plain that we all have failed God. The scripture says in the book of Galatians, be careful about how you handle your brothers and sisters, lest you yourself be tempted. We laugh and mock people who get caught up in this or get caught up in that. But here's the question you have to ask. How would you have handled the same temptation? Would you have been able to stand? Paul says, everybody who says, I can stand. He said, take heed, you that think that you're standing, lest you fall. The moment we become so arrogant to believe that there's no pit or snare that could ever entrap us, it's at that point we've already been captured by self-righteousness and arrogance. Yeah. It's important to know that uh, in this moment, I can tell you the Sadducees and the scribes and Pharisees lost a convert that day. But Jesus gained a new follower. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I bet you when she walked back down that hill, her love and esteem for Jesus went up. And she was happy about him. But she probably never, ever wanted to go near that temple again unless Jesus was there. Folks, that's why it's so important for the presence of God to be in the church. Because even if people have had bad experiences in the house of God, if the presence of God is there and it is real, broken hearts are mended and broken hearts are healed. That old, that old song says, neither do I condemn thee, words so sweet and sublime, falling from the hands or lips of mercy, sounds like the sweetest chime, neither do I condemn thee, please say them more and o'er, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Only he can sing that and say that to you and to me. Yeah. And once you're forgiven, you're forgiven, folks. Isn't it good to be forgiven? Oh, my goodness. I'm telling you, at some point in our life, we came to the king and we needed forgiveness. And regardless of how many bad things we did in the past, the blood of Jesus gives us a second chance. And sometimes he gives us a third chance. Yeah, because when we trip, when we fall, we have to get up again. Yeah. All of you have stumbled at some point or another. People like Joanna, Johanna, I should say, she's got she's to take advantage of that blood every day. Every day, oh God, cleanse me. Forgive me, God. Let's stand. Let's stand. It's a great day to be alive. If you're alive. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you lovely folks that out there in the car, we'll include you in the prayer because we certainly want God to continue the good work he's begun in your heart and in your life. And thankfully, we find forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. Folks, don't let the devil hang anything over your head and don't let anybody Keep throwing up your past mistakes.
just to try to make you feel worse and worse. Folks, you come to that top of the hill in the presence of God, you leave the presence of God with fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Your word is true. And Lord, when we think about our individual lives right now, you know better than we know ourselves. You know what's going on in our hearts and minds. You can see where there are weaknesses. You can see where there's iniquity. But Father, by your great grace, I'm praying, Lord, if there's any private or hidden thing, that God, you'd bring deliverance even now as we're praying. I pray, God, that there be wonderful freedom through your presence right now. Father, invade every automobile. Minister to every person that may be struggling with the condemnation and guilt and shame of yesterday and their past. I pray, O oh God, that they finally lay it aside. In Jesus' name, amen. Final thing I'll tell you is, we were preaching years ago down in, in uh, Kansas at one of those crusades, and I had a man that came. He's a Vietnam War veteran. And I, I don't know how many folks he might have killed and how much bad stuff he might have had to do over there in those jungles. But I do know this. I got to the end of that message, gave that altar call. That man was just weeping. He was bent over, shaking and convulsing. And I didn't get the story until the, a couple of days later when they told me about his time in the military and how he had gone from one bad relationship to another. Didn't even have good relationships with his children. But that one message cut through decades of shame and condemnation just to bring liberty to a man that was haunted by his past. Folks, only God can do that. Only God can do that. God bless you folks. We, we love you. Uh, it's, you know, everybody have a great week, blessed week. Stay healthy, and uh, we'll see everybody pretty soon. Love you and appreciate you. In the name of the Lord, what's going on? Uh, this